Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Yeah, come in. Ms. Wolf, I'm here from the Native American Media Council. We'd like to talk about your public radio fundraising mascot. Chief Pledgeawatha? <laughs> People love that little guy. Help me understand the point of Chief Pledgeawatha. Oh, sure. Uh, when we hit our fundraising goals, he comes out and does this little war dance. Uh, but if we're lagging behind, the chief does a rain dance to, you know, make it rain. Ms. Wolf, we find this offensive. We're part of society, like everybody else. We don't do funny little dances. And if we did, we wouldn't want you appropriating them to raise money for something that has nothing to do with us. Oh, I get it. I, I really do get it. But Chief Pledgeawatha is part of the history of this place. Even though right now on March 28th, 2014, I see how he kicks a tripwire. But he's been with us so long that removing him would be just this shock to our system, you know? Ms. Wolf, our records indicate that you introduced Chief Pledgeawatha in October of last year. Yeah, and by now he's like a symbiont wrapped around our aorta. Removing him would kill both parties. I'm going to have to insist. Well, uh, okay. We'll nix him. Thank you. Have a nice day. Tucker, do we still have the costume for Patty McPledge Drive, the little drunken leprechaun? We're going to be bringing him back. Today on The Nose, a trip to the Grand Budapest Hotel, and Stephen Colbert offends people while making fun of offensive stereotypes. And now, his new book of poems is all about his time with Lindsay Lohan, Colin McEnroe. Well, those are James Franco's poems. We get, people get us confused all the time. Uh, all right, so yes, and the opening segment will make a little bit more sense to you if you're not following the Stephen Colbert situation in the second segment. Let me just tell you who's here, uh, and uh, let me tell you what we're going to talk about. In the first segment, we are going to talk about Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, the new film by filmmaker Wes Anderson. Uh, with us, uh, Carolyn Payne, comedian, dancer, dance troupe impresario, blogger, Writer, actress, what else? That's about it in a nutshell. That's about it for now, okay. <laughs> uh, James Hanley, who runs Trinity Cine Studio, uh, and uh, joining us really for the first time on The Nose, although he did appear down in New Haven in an Oscar-specific version of The Nose, but for the regular, regular Nose, novelist and filmmaker Gorman Bouchard. Now, Gorman was recruited specifically because I knew, without having to ask him, that he would hate the Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson. Uh, and I really felt it would be kind of lopsided. If, it, if it, I didn't want a situation where everybody liked the movie. And I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, so I knew I could be counted on to go the other way. And I just I, even looking at Gorman now, I know he's not going to disappoint me. But um, <laughs> let, let, let's sort of set things up a little bit before we, we, before we go there. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, it's, it is an oddly constructed movie in terms of time. It begins in 1985 and then falls through time to 1968 and then falls through time from there to 1932. It takes place in a fictitious company call, a country called Zubrauka, I believe. Um, it is the story of a beautiful uh, wedding cake-like hotel. There's a lot of cake and pastry in the movie, too. Wedding cake a hotel there called the Grand uh, Budapest Hotel, which is presided over by uh, a hotel manager slash concierge uh, named Gustav, 
Um, and so let's just hear uh, a little bit of Gustav. He's uh, dealing with one of his favorite clients. He tends to uh, favor very, very rich, uh, very old ladies who he is not averse to having sexual relations with. He's talking to Tilda Swinton right here. I'm not leaving. I beg your pardon? I'm not leaving. Why not? I'm frightened. Of what? I fear this may be the last time we ever see each other. Why on earth would that be the case? Well, I can't put it into words, but I feel it. Well, for goodness sake, th there's no reason for you to leave us if you'd rather... Come with me. To Lutz. Please. Give me your hand. You've nothing to fear. You're always anxious before you travel. I admit you appear to be suffering a more acute attack on this occasion, but truly and honestly... Oh, dear God, what have you done to your fingernails? I beg your pardon. This diabolical varnish, the colour is completely wrong. Oh, really? Don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. I, I am physically repulsed. <laughs> All right, that's Rafe Fiennes uh, as uh, the wonderful Gustav. So, um... I think we need to we hold uh, Gorman in reserve for a second here. And so James, uh, going to play a less predictable uh, entity, uh, James, uh, give us your take on this movie. Well, I, I really – it's actually become my new favorite Wes Anderson movie actually. Um, I want to see it again. It's a very intricate film that I didn't feel that I uh, – you know, th th I, I, I wasn't able to get all the details of uh, the images alone – uh, the intricacy of the film. Um, I think it's something that's relatively rare in film now, uh, which is a very disciplined filmmaker actually having a vision to create something that's sort of intricate in the way that a Moliere farce uh, could be, perhaps, uh, that if it's well played, that all of the characters are, uh, some of them are very fleeting. Some, you know, uh, they're only on screen for a matter of minutes. Um, it just is something that to me was a pleasurable change of pace to see something like that after uh, we happen to be showing right now American Hustle, which is an interesting film, a good film in another way. But Wes Anderson, to me, has an ability to draw together what seems to be a trifle, an incredibly detailed trifle. But I think it's also a satire, a very sophisticated satire about the rich and about uh, – uh, fooling yourself about what's going on elsewhere in the world, perhaps. And um, it also has a sort of air of menace underneath it, which is, I, I don't know, it has a very uh, a very strong connection with the times, I think. And uh, to me, a very stimulating movie that, I, as I say, I want to see again. When you say a strong connection with the times, you mean these times right these now? These times right now, yeah, yes. I mean, the, what we see here, it's set in 1932, which is, uh, and, and one of the things that Anderson has done, I think, is to not really pin himself down to correct times. So yeah. we're seeing the rise of fascists who look an awful lot like Nazis. In fact, uh, Hitler didn't uh, take over until 1933. It's not, none of it's sort of history specific. On the other hand, it's unmistakable, you know, who, who, who's there and who's scary and who's menacing whom. Uh, just once again, to sort of provide a little bit more context for those of you jumping into this anew and afresh, uh, Wes Anderson's movies uh, range from his first movie, Bottle Rocket, to the Royal Tenenbaums, to Rushmore, uh, to the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, to the Darjeeling Express, to the Fantastic Mr. Fox, to Moonrise Kingdom. I think I got them all. Um, and uh, and now this one. So, Carolyn, I, first of all, some of this has to do with like, how much history you have with Wes Anderson. But give us your take on the movie and 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 on Wes Anderson if you if you have one. All right. Well, I struggled a bit with this. I wanted to see it again too, but kind of to see if I had missed something. I had read the reviews and I you know, went into this with pretty high expectations because it has everything that, that I'd like in a movie. It has an art heist. It has urbane comedy. It has actors who have great faces that fascinate me and I love watching. But I sat there and 
I just, I felt like it missed the mark for me, but yet I didn't hate it. And I'd say it's worth watching, but I didn't love it. Like Moonrise Kingdom, I loved. I fell in love with that movie. And in fact, the more I watched it, the more I loved it, which is what then tempted me into thinking, well, maybe if I saw it again, I'd like it. But I just don't think that it, I would love it. All right, we're going to go to Gorman in just a second. I want to say that your opinions are welcome, too. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Uh, Gorman, I give you the floor. I See, I liked Wes Anderson's first film, mm-hmm. Bottle Rocket. Yeah. I thought it was a great indie film. I really liked Rushmore, the next film. And then all of my friends are raving about this Royal Tenenbaums, and I saw it twice to try to figure out what in God's name people liked about this film. I never could figure it out. And I, I've watched everything except for Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I just find that he is literally pretentious for the sake of being pretentious. I found nothing worthwhile in this film. I even think his art direction, which is normally brilliant, mm-hmm. so you can at least go and watch an interesting painting move. Uh, it, it, even this film, I thought, fell flat in that respect. I think you have a bunch of great actors and you're not using them to any important purpose. Uh, the dialogue is just ridiculous. I, I feel like I'm watching a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon without any of the talent behind it. All right, so we're sort of evenly divided here because uh, James, there's James and uh, James and I on one side, Carolyn and Gorman on the other. I want to sort of pull a little deeper into this and, and talk uh, about what I see as some of the themes. Um, I also want to back up and just say, to me, the key to most Wes Anderson movies is this. I don't think it applies to Grand Budapest Hotel, but when I one of the reasons my son and I fa- fell in love with with Wes Anderson from the very beginning, and we we saw Bottle Rocket before there were any other Wes Anderson movies to see. Uh, and it, it pretty much summed up our state of mind at the moment, uh, which was that we were both depressed but thinking that there actually might be something kind of funny about that. And, and I, I do think that one of the things that Anderson has done explicitly in a lot of his movies is to treat the pain, the emotional pain of depression, pretty much the way slapstick treats physical pain. In other words, if you're watching Peter Sellers fall and crack his head or something like that, you, you, you laugh because you're aware of what that pain would be like and you're also aware of the fact that it's being stylized for you in, in a way that protects you from the actual pain. And, and in so many of Anderson's movies, that's kind of what he's doing. He's showing you really depressed and miserable people, but in a way that allows you to laugh at and with them, uh, much the way Slapstick does. Now, this is a very different movie. And this was not a movie about depression. And I would say it's the first ever Wes Anderson movie that is not consumed with the subject of depression. I think what it is consumed by is with the subject of war and menace. Uh, to me, the war and menace, the, the people with the sort of swastika-like things on, uh, the, the terribly villainous Willem Dafoe, uh, these... To, to me, they're not undercurrents in the movie. They're, they are half of the movie. Half of the movie is about brilliance and passion and following really what you believe in. And half of the movie is about the people trying to crush that um, and how you respond to that, you know, how, you, how you keep your own life going in the face of that kind of misery. So and somebody I, else take it. I think that that's exactly why it's actually the very antithesis of pretense and pretentious filmmaking. I think that it's actually those undercurrents and the themes that it's taking what are themes that usually get – if they do get treated in uh, quote-unquote mainstream films, they're usually with a sledgehammer and it's usually very clear what the point of it is and it doesn't really have the kind of disciplined complexity that this film has. I think that uh, the, the the source of some of the material is from uh, an interesting writer, Stefan Zweig, who uh, is uh, fr- uh, 
Viennese writer who eventually uh, who became a pacifist and uh, was very conscious of what was happening in Europe in the 1930s and into the 40s. And I think that what Wes Anderson has done with this is created an extraordinary updated version using the images and the structures of Stefan Zweig and of the whole sort of um, kitsch that the visual part of the movie is about and has brought it into something that appears to be a, a trifle but is not, which to me is the very description of a fine satire, that you can watch that fine satire and think that it's as thin as paper, but it has a lot more to it. Well, I'd like to ask the two naysayers here, too. I mean, another movie that it reminds me a bit of, it reminds me a little bit of Duck Soup, uh, in, yes. in the sense that sort of war is bumping up against sort of hilarity and slapstick and, and that kind of thing. And I mean, I, I found the movie funny, and I, I laughed a lot during the movie, but did you did you find it funny, Carolyn? There were moments. There, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, actually, we, we were talking earlier about the uh, previews before the movie, mm. and there was a preview for a Seth MacFarlane movie that <laughs> I, right, I was laughing hysterically during that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and then during the movie, I found myself being like, well, why can't I be watching that movie? But You're the <laughs> second person to mention that exact juxtaposition. You're the second person to mention that exact juxtaposition to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it set me up because sometimes, you know, the, the movies that you're seeing the trailers for, they're setting up, you get like a vibe of what you're, you, you think that they're going to be in the same vein. I mean, this movie definitely had moments where I was like, Haha, you know, that nice little, like, oh, that's laughing. But some of it was kind of that, you're, you're laughing because it, it was, there's that awkward, you know, in an awkward situation where you find yourself giggling. I almost felt like it was that kind of funny for me. Never laughed once. I never cracked a smile once. I, I, and I went in with the lowest of expectations. With Usually with me, that means I'm going to find something to like. Mm -hmm. I liked the preview right. for the Seth MacFarlane movie. <laughs> uh, I liked the Scarlett Johansson preview. I liked the preview for Don Hemingway. Uh, and then the movie started. Uh, I, I Sincerely, I, 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 found, I found nothing of substance in this film. I, I just... You know, it, it. I think it, for me, it was just a film that meant nothing to me. It, it. It's. I can't even say that I hated it enough. Where like there are films that I truly detest that make me angry. This one just was like, was I couldn't care less. I. I. And that was the thing where I. Where I. I, I disagree with you guys is you have to like the characters and somehow find something redeemable about the characters. I found nothing redeemable about any character in this film. And I don't mean from a bad point. I just from the point, the way they were written. I think this was a really sloppily written film. It, That's interesting. I mean, I sort of felt the opposite. I have sometimes felt about what's in <laughs> movies that they are sloppily written. I didn't, I didn't feel that uh, that was the case with this one. I'm going to play a, a little bit more of the movie for you just to, once again, help you uh, orient uh, everybody. Uh, so, uh, what are the many, many sort of Sort of capers that's going on in the movie, and that there are there's a um, a murder, uh, and and Gustav's falsely accused of that. Uh, but a lot of the movie involves this painting <laughs> called "Boy with Apple," uh, which is uh, apparently been willed to Gustav by Tilda Swinton's character, who dies very early in the movie. Um, uh, Betsy, actually, let's go. Let's play clip four. This is um, uh, a discussion of. Um, how Agatha, Agatha is sort of the, the young girl who, who falls in love with the, the younger hero of this movie. Uh, somebody is telling her how she's going to survive if she's caught with a boy with apple. There's something I haven't told you, Agatha. Okay. We stole a painting. It's very valuable, maybe five million clubecks, in fact. I don't know if anyone's even noticed it's missing it, but if something should happen to me and Mr. Gustav... You steal art? 
One picture. Anyway, we need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find Boy with Apple. Don't take less than half the retail asking price. Also, Zero, I'm a baker. You're a pastry chef, middle. one of the I'm best not in the fence, region. If that's the term. I don't trade in stolen property. I said it wrong. She willed it to him. The um, this is the voice, the male voice you hear is that of Tony Revolore, who's actually introduced in this movie. Uh, he's played as an older man by F. Murray Abram, who, by the way, is having quite a little renaissance these days. Yeah, I mean, is. every every time I look up, F. Murray, Murray Abram is either in Homeland or he's in uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, he's in this. Um, but this young man, Tony Revolori, if you're if you like Wes Anderson, this guy looks like he was bred as some kind of <laughs> Wes Anderson project. He's exactly the kind of he has that kind of deadpan quality that a lot of uh, Anderson characters have, and sort of a willingness to go along with things. You know, he's just constantly you're constantly seeing him on a motorcycle that he barely has under control. That he's just calmly doing things uh, at the behest of this outrageous character, Gustav, played by. Ray and he's Fox. a completely serious character too. Yeah, he's like his whole demeanor. I actually thought he was the best thing in the movie. Yeah, he's, he's right up there. Yeah, and that's think. saying something in a movie that does have, as, as Gorman said, this is an incredible cast, uh, often with very small roles. I think, as, as James pointed out, with Tom Wilkinson at the beginning. Uh, you see all your favorite Wes Anderson actors, Adrian Brody. Uh, you, you see uh, Owen Wilson. You see Bill Murray briefly. You see, actually, sort of a lot of your favorite male Wes Anderson actors. They're all in there. But I, I did think this guy, Revolori, uh, was great. And I, there's another thing that Wes Anderson does. There's a couple of things that I like about Wes Anderson. One of them is so many of his movies are about someone with a passion, you know, a passion that is trying to be squashed by the people around him. So in Moonrise Kingdom, it's a little kid with a raccoon hat on. You know, <laughs> he's got a passion. He really believes in something. Almost nobody else does. And they are trying to drive him down any way that they can. Uh, there's that kind of oppressive quality of the uh, adult world, most of which, by the way, in Moonrise Kingdom is consumed by horrible depression. I mean, the adults there are just <laughs> some of the most <laughs> miserable people you've ever seen in your life. But, you know, Jason Schwartzman's character, Max, in, in Rushmore, same kind of person, this guy with this sort of blazing passion for things that almost can't be accommodated by the world around him. He's constantly tearing through the fabric of any environment he's in because he dreams such big dreams. I mean, he's an idiot in some ways, and he's, a lot of his dreams are, are, are silly and misplaced, and they're just the grandiosity of, of a boy his age. But... But he's, you know, you see Anderson, he loves people with passion. And I think that's one of the things that he likes about Gustav and to a certain degree uh, about his protege, um, played by Tony Revolori, Zero, this guy who, who, who believes in a lot of these same things. I mean, a lot of these same things have to do with living large, you know, and having the right champagne and all this kind of stuff while the Pastries. world's falling apart. Yeah. The pastries were definitely, I thought, their own character. And as I said, I ended up dreaming of pastries last night. I have no <laughs> idea if it was because of this movie or if I am just depriving myself of not enough pastries in my life. But um, I, I found the pastries to be an interesting yeah. character. You, you know, they're kind of like a, 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 an element in the film that is part of a sort of something that's a, a lost art as a comedy of manners that you don't see anymore. Um, I'm thinking of Hollywood films by Lubitsch and Max O'Fool's um, People who came from Europe, uh, from came, Budapest in Lubitsch's case, yes, Budapest in his case, who uh, made Hollywood films of the time. Um, one, in, one I'm thinking of in particular, "Letter from an Unknown Woman," which is another Stefan Zweig story, and <clears throat> these are uh, incredibly intricate. Uh, language-based stories that contain all sorts of characters who unfold very slowly in in very precise ways. And I think that 
what is remarkable about the, the, this that is so different, it's taking filmmaking, I think, in a different direction. It's taking it to a sense of complexity that is not going to be it's certainly not going to be easily sold to the audience, but it actually may engage people on a different level to think of satire as being something that they need to unpick and find out what does this mean, you know, what is being said. And I think when you're in a situation where there are a lot of rich and powerful people who get to buy the media and do what they want to do, that the importance of satire and the ability to deliver a message that hits home that doesn't get understood by its targets until a little later is great. And that, I think, is one of the things that's underlying here. We could, we could just replay your comment in the second segment when we're talking about Colbert. Right. But, I was, yeah. <laughs> everything that you just said will apply to the next thing we talk about. But, yeah, continue. Go ahead. No, but one other last thing I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, the placement of trailers with films is, is, is a uh, major, uh, highly paid enterprise in the film industry. And the fact that Seth MacFarlane trailer was playing with the Wes Anderson film, the, 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 there's something going on there, which is that there's an attempt to platform this movie to give it time, which is what it needs, really, and I, I laud that. It's not playing on every screen, but it's playing on enough screens that people can see it. But it's also clear that they, by putting in the Seth MacFarlane trailer, that's like a telegraph to people that you should, you know, who might not otherwise come to a Wes Anderson film, perhaps, or they might be intrigued. And so it, it, that sort of telegraphing that you should, that, that, that an audience that wouldn't come might come and see this film. And I'm hoping it gets enough time in the market. Its release pattern is developing a little bit like um, Brokeback Mountain, which was not to try and load it all on the first weekend and then have people, you know, baffled by the movie perhaps and not have it a success. But I think that if it plays on few screens for a long time, it'll reach its audience and, and, and people will see something in it uh, that is really profound. I mean, what's interesting, because he's so eccentric, has been a real niche product for a long time. I mean, the number of people who've ever seen The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou or Darjeeling Express or Darjeeling Limited, I can't, I can't remember which, which is the name of that movie. It's a pretty small group of people. But you can sort of feel, even watching the television commercials for it, the promotional campaign, the stuff that James is talking about in some of the art houses in Connecticut, in Bantam and in Madison, I think in at least one of those places, maybe both of those places, it's playing on both screens. Right. It's like the only movie they're showing. Uh, at a two-screen uh, art house. So there is sort of an attempt to, to break Wes Anderson big, maybe in a way that's never happened before. <laughs> that's just, if you could just, just see the look on Gorman's face I, I, right because now. Because I, I, last year was a year, the, the other film, is when I was talking about a film that I detested, mm. that made me angry, you mentioned, someone mentioned it, uh, uh, the last uh, Coen Brothers movie. And I, lo- I love the Coen brothers, and mm-hmm. I think they've made mostly great films. I think that was the worst film they've ever made. Uh, and, and for very <laughs> much the same reason of no story. I mean, really horrible writing. In, in that case, really, I, there, wasn't, I, there wasn't one performance in that film that I liked. I thought every performance was just absolutely atrocious, especially John Goodman, mm-hmm. which was a real disappointment for me. Uh, and And... and Sometimes I, I, but my problem is not with the Coen Brothers. My problem with Wes Anderson is Wes Anderson to me is very much like the whole Brooklyn music scene, mm-hmm. and which I, I mean, basically it's. I think Wes Anderson basically takes filmmaking and cuts, basically castrates it, and I don't. I, I find it just. I, I, I love satire. I don't find there's. I don't find this satire. I find this cartoonish. Well, we, we did an entire show was one of the most ill-advised things that we ever did, although it turned out kind of good, on, on, on an aesthetic called Tweet. 
um, which you know does apply to a certain kind of pop music, does apply to a certain kind of. Uh, I mean, Zoe Deschanel is probably like the the epitome of twee, you know. And 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 Anderson's movies are often very twee in their style. I mean, if well, I think one reason that people like Gorman don't like movies by Wes Anderson is it, I'm sort of stealing this observation from Bill Curry. If you're really concerned about film in a certain way, and I think this is also one of the reasons that Anderson and a lot of critics bump heads. Uh, David Edelstein, my favorite critic in the world, and one of my favorite people in the world, kind of just doesn't really like Wes Anderson movies that much, you know. Because you, if you're worried about the future of movies and the ability of of cinema to uh, to be everything you want it to be, you probably don't think of sort of lavender colored velvet boxes as being you know one of the ways you're going to get there. And that kind of is the the Anderson aesthetic in you know, these highly reticulated interiors of really interesting little things. You can see you know exactly what kind of child he was. He loved <laughs> to play with big castles and houses that had like a lot of little rooms where you could put little men inside them. And he's still kind of doing that right now. But, but I see within all that, and I guess James does too, the opportunity to make really, really interesting movies. And I would even connect them to another kind of filmmaking, the kind of rapid fire. This movie reminds me of the kind of rapid fire kind of Howard Hawks comedies yeah. uh, you know, that you don't see so much anymore. If you go back, it's odd because everything else in the world has speeded up. But there aren't too many movies that have the kind of pace of – his Girl Friday, you know, I'll just boom, oh boom, boom, God. boom. Howard boom. Hawks is spinning in his grave right now. <laughs> to, to, to mention this movie in a sentence of His Girl Friday, which is one of the greatest comedies of all time. Well, actually, I think I'll spin that Howard, for him. Howard, Howard Hawks, actually, it, the, the comparison is a good one because, in fact, uh, one of the things that makes uh, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel work to me is the, the script is so finely honed and it's so spare and it's delivered with a, a rapid fire that that's – it's almost that's why I want to see it again, you know, is to catch all of the nuances of that, is that uh, it's a practice delivery. It takes – I mean, Ray Fine's delivery is an extraordinary performance. I mean, but there are there are many extraordinary performances in the film, and I think that Howard Hawks uh, had the same ability to coax his players into a repartee that happens so rapidly it sounds very natural, but it also can contain the ideas that are in the script in a way that many films spend like 20 minutes trying to explain. They do it in a matter of a minute. Carolyn? See, I think my problem with this was pacing. It mm. seemed off. There were moments that were rapid fire and it was there. But then there were these other moments where it was just, it was so slow. I was like more into my popcorn and checking my watch. And I just couldn't, it just was moving at this bizarre pace to me, which is, and and even with the, the dialogue, and I think you played one of the clips where, mm. you know, one of the things I do really like about Wes Anderson is his use of music and how he'll almost underscore the entire right. movie. And he's done this in other movies, but I noticed it here when it came for the like the punchline, the bum bum, yeah. the music would cut out. So it right. was like you were set up for this punchline that right. just wasn't there, he's, and that Rocky was and yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's he's playing with lots of uh, issues like that using music, but there's also format too. The format of the movie, the movie frame, the the, the whole movie is filled with frames of different kinds, of different sizes. And it, 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 you know, for a technical geek like myself, I'm seeing that all the time. You know, when we're showing movies uh, at the theater, we're constantly do, working with formats. But he's taking those from a square to a rectangle to an extremely widescreen. He, he loves to center. There's a, a, a yes. Slate, Slate magazine, which has done probably about 18 different articles about Grand Budapest Hotel, has an entire article about centering yeah. uh, in, in Wes Anderson movies. He loves to put uh, and the his symmetry of right the yeah, that, that's, yes. just, that's just stealing from Kubrick, who. I mean, 
if you're gonna. But, but the thing is, the one thing, the only thing I will say about this film, which I found interesting, mm-hmm. that it was, it was I, where I saw it, and it was projected in four three. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sixteen by nine or widescreen. No, well, that's how it's done. It, because in order to be able to fit the widescreen sections, you have to do it with digital cinema. Now there's only two boxes. Right. One is uh, two thirty nine, one to two thirty nine for CinemaScope, and the other is one seventy eight or one uh, one eighty five for uh, a flat film. So it has to be fitted within that box. And All right. So well, we, we, before we get out into the weeds of that, because you just lost me and Carolyn, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, that was the, this was the interesting part of the conversation. What are you talking about? You guys can have that conversation during the break. Uh, we got to save time for Stephen Colbert. If uh, by the way, you're going to want to. Some of you will want to call in during the Colbert conversation. I remind you of the number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We'll come back after this. Oh, we, okay, okay. we we got through that fairly peaceably. Although at one point James was holding his head while Gorman was talking, but that was about <laughs> inside Lewin Davis. Um, all right, so we're moving on here. This is going to take a little bit of explaining if you're kind of just jumping into this controversy. But uh, basically, one of the things that's happening right now is that Stephen Colbert, who, as we know, plays a kind of pompous right wing blowhard, he pretends to be one in the course of this complicated hosting uh, of of a talk show, and he kind of dives in and out of this persona. But for, for the most part, he's in this persona. Um, so, uh, and it's modeled loosely on Bill O'Reilly, but it's also modeled on all the talk show hosts who've uh, who've ever probably bothered Stephen Colbert with their doctrinaire behaviors. Um, so he was addressing uh, this week the whole question of the Washington Redskins mascot, the whole idea of having uh, um, a team identity that is Redskins. And, and I, so I think to get us where we're going, uh, we have to play a little clip. This, this is about two minutes long, and this is sort of the thing that started the rock slide that we're, we're looking at right now. Folks, the PC police continue to hammer the Washington Redskins over their so-called offensive name. Though, if you've seen them play recently, their name is the least offensive thing on the field. (laughs) Thankfully, Redskins owner Daniel Snyder has found a way to smoke them the peace pipe. The Washington Redskins are trying to improve their image with the Native American community. Owner Dan Snyder is now creating a foundation to assist American Indian tribes. Snyder sent a letter to Redskins fans laying out a plan to start the Washington Redskins Original Americans Foundation. That's right, the Washington Redskins Original Americans Foundation. Because Redskins is not offensive if you only use it once in your name. (laughs) Folks, this move by Dan Snyder inspires me. Because my show has frequently come under attack for having a so-called offensive mascot. My beloved character, Ching Chong Ding Dong. <laughs> ooh, ooh, I love tea. It's so good for you. Mm. Mm, you're so pretty, American girl. You come here, you kiss my tea, make all sweet. I don't need no sugar when you're around. <laughs> come on, my rickshaw, I give you a ride to Bangkok. <laughs> now, folks... The small-minded out there have called Ching Chong Ding Dong an offensive caricature of an Asian American. That is wrong. Mr. Ding Dong is not American. He is a Chinaman from Guangdong, and if he ever heard someone call him a stereotype, he would choke on his opium pipe. 
Of course, there was no pl pleasing the attack dogs over at Asian Media Watch, who demanded that I remove Ching Chong from the show's letterhead and stop having him accept awards on my behalf. <laughs> the point is, the point is, offensive or not, not, Ching Chong is part of the unique heritage of the Colbert Nation that cannot change. But I am willing to show the Asian community that I care by introducing the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Sensitivity to Orientals or whatever. It is a wonderful charity. Thank you. Yes. I will applaud my sensitivity as well. So it wasn't that segment that got him in trouble. It was an almost word-for-word -word tweet of the last few words that he said there. He, the Colbert Report uh, official account tweeted, I am willing to... Or, there's actually some question as to whether it's the official account, but it doesn't really matter. It, he, uh, somebody, as the Colbert Report, tweeted the last few words of that bit. I am willing to show Asian community I care by introducing the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for sensitivity to Orientals or whatever. Um, Twitter has gone wild with this, and in fact, Asian people are genuinely offended not by the kind of stereotyping and mockery that Colbert is satirizing, but by Colbert. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, it really does raise a lot of interesting questions about satire uh, and, and, and who, who gets satire and what happens when people decide, I guess, that the means of satire are not worth the end of satire. Um, I don't know, Gorman, you got to start it down this road. Where, where are you on this? I think I, I can I, probably imagine. I feel that there should pretty much be almost no line. It's like I think that I think people are way too PC. And I really feel that it's like it is a comedian's job to be offensive and funny. That is what is mo in most cases is funny is when you offend someone. And I think Colbert is an equal opportunity offender. I, I mean, he's offending he's offending white guys just by just by his his character. Uh, I, so I, I mean, I just feel that people need a life. Like there are so many more important things to spend your time protesting. It's like this is this is silly. But there is a lot of protesting. There's a hashtag on Twitter, cancel Colbert, uh, which is uh, getting a lot of activity. Which will just bring up his ratings. And they are saying also we want an apology, et cetera. So, Carolyn, how should they handle something like this? <sighs> I hate Twitter. <laughs> 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 I really think that the problem is Twitter here. And I know there's this whole thing. Outrage Twitter is what, you know, brings about these kind of angry outbursts against people, places, and things. And I, I think that they're, they're handling this correctly. I, I agree. If you're a comedian, your, your humor is offending people, mocking things. It's just, it is what it is. And this, he was really not going against, it, it was more directed towards the owner of the Redskins. Absolutely. So, um, you know, well, I, and I just, I really, I blame Twitter for this. <laughs> I, I, I agree about Twitter being a problem because it is a, is a kind of like almost faceless kind of wave that washes over everything. I'd much rather see it, for instance, dealt with out in the open on his show. Um, the problem to me here, though, is that, yes, he was going after the Redskins, but it's merged into something else now, which has sort of taken the heat off that, which is, to me, a kind of failure of the satire. And so, um, I mean, I, I agree about uh, going for the jugular as a comedian, you know, and, and, and having no holds barred. I think that's great. But I think at the same time, you've got to be sort of present at the consequences of that, too, and, and, and join in the discussion. Twitter is a, is a noise sort of thing that makes it impossible to have that happen. 
And so you've got what is kind of ridiculous to me to to uh, for him to actually come on the show now and apologize for the ching chong ding dong stereotype. Um, it, within his character would be, I mean, the mind reels at the thought of <laughs> exactly what that would yeah, mean. Who, who could apologize? <laughs> who could, who could, yes, exactly. Who could apologize? I mean, either Stephen right. Colbert or Stephen Colbert, but there are obviously two different Right, uh, and actually I'm sure he would, he, he may well actually do that next week. I, I, I think I there mean, are phalanxes of comedians right now who, if they have any access to Stephen Colbert, are saying the one thing that we beg of you is do not apologize for this. I think for the right. reasons that Gorman yes. is saying, I, you, I think you're right. You cannot that. go down that road of beginning to apologize uh, for things like this. You know, this is a really interesting area. And um, back in the day when I was on WTIC, and I think once since I've been on WNPR, we've played a song by Hugh Blumenfeld, who's a, a Connecticut uh, songwriter uh, and a wonderful sort of folk-style satirist at times, uh, about this very topic, about the mascot topic. And the song is all about the day that the uh, Detroit Negroes play the New York Jews. Um, and, and in this song, he brings in every other possible team offensive stereotype. And, uh, and, and as he's singing it, I mean, it's a very shocking song in some ways. And it, and it has all kinds of cliche stereotypes in it. And you're sitting there kind of reeling from it. And if you're the host of the show, you're wondering what kind of fallout there's going to be. But he's doing exactly what Colbert is doing, saying this is how it sounds. You know, this is how it sounds if you play that string out. Um, it, the, the question is, do, do, how well does the audience understand it? And, and I think James raises a really good question, which is you can't completely give up on the whole question of whether the audience is going to understand it or not. I mean, from Jonathan Swift forward, there, there are problems at times with audiences not understanding something and therefore the impact of it being diminished. Uh, but I, I don't know how to think this out beyond that. I think that's then you're playing down to the lowest common denominator in your audience. You, you mm-hmm. can't be making your jokes for the stupidest people in the in the crowd. You got to be making your jokes for hopefully the people that are there who understand you and appreciate you. And on Twitter, I, I would guarantee you the majority of people who retweeted that never s- listened to the clip. It's, it's just that's an what easy I was going to say. It's taken out of context. Yeah. That there's right. the big problem here. Yeah. It's not like the joke and it's full. It's the when it was taken out of context. It becomes the and satire then, itself that is that is driving it, and then then it makes no sense. And, it and even have any real connection. Even the context that we have here, the context that we just shared with you, isn't all the context. And I, I do want to sort of bring this in. This this it, ridiculous. Uh, stereotype Ching Chong Ding Dong is a character, in fact, that Colbert has used a few times in the past. And one of the reasons that he started using it is because real talk radio show hosts actually do that sometimes. Uh, and we have a little clip. He 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 brought this up that uh, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I think this is in 2011 uh, when the when the Prime Minister of China was here. Um, began imitating the way the man talked and claiming that since there wasn't simultaneous translation, we have no idea what he said. Uh, we have just a little bit of the clip. I think we have both Colbert and Limbaugh in this clip. I found myself trying to write down what Hu Jintao was saying in Chinese. <laughs> Phonetically, so I could repeat it to you. Nobody was translated. Shocking. <laughs> and shocking that no one was translating the Chinese that Rush was just speaking there. Uh, they, want, they went on, by the way, to, to translate Rush's uh, Chinese. Uh, Colbert had a translator uh, 
he, Rush would speak a little bit of his fake Chinese, and uh, the translator would say, my favorite donut is every donut. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's Rush Limbaugh, not pretending to be a right-wing blowhard, you know, mocking the way that Chinese people talk, but actually being a right-wing blowhard mocking the way that Chinese people talk. That's where Colbert got this whole idea from, because it has a, real, it has a reality to it. And, and I think that's the essence of Colbert's talent, actually, is that he's, he's one of the few sort of on TV sort of personalities who's actually playing that very fine edge of satire that is able to actually bring that bring that out. And the problem, again, is if you're looking at the Twitter reaction to this, you're missing the whole context of where it lies. And the fact that uh, he, I think Colbert skates on thin ice, but that is the very nature of a good satirist and that he's going to be in people's faces about this. But I think that sometimes Sometimes, uh, sometimes the context of it is obscured, and then the argument becomes about something else, and that's the problem now. Is that the 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 the, the issue for the next few days is not going to be about that? Yeah, and I I do think I mean I I, I think we're of one mind here, unfortunately, uh, about this. You want me to just go take another? Yeah, you, <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't ask you to do that. Um, although, I, the, so I tried to see it another way, and one of the tweets that I read that did. I mean, it, it meant something to me anyway. It was an Asian person saying, you could have taken down the Washington Redskins without having to do that, without having to, to mock us. You know, you, you, there's another way to go after the Washington Redskins as an offensive mascot without having to go where you went, um, which is an interesting point anyway. I mean, I, I'm pretty much with you guys. I, I think satire has to take risks, has to skate on thin ice, has to walk that, that tightrope all, all the time. And but but I, and I deal with this frequently. Actually, I have almost a standard email that I send out to people who are offended by the intro, introductions that we do, where I say, you know, I can't write them for the most offended person, you know, and because then I won't write anything. Because there's, I mean, I, I had somebody one time say that because I'd made a joke about seafood seafood allergy, and she said, you know, you really need to apologize to the entire allergy community for making <laughs> a joke about seafood allergy. And I said, like, if, I, if I thought that way, I could never write anything. I could never say anything. But you know, people do have feelings to it. So. But I, yeah, I think one of the things about this really is that you you, you have to look at context too. That that um, I mean, during times when uh, a community particularly is under stress, or that there are stereotypes out there that are being used in a way that are not dissimilar from the way the satirist is using them, then certainly I can see the sensitivity to that. Absolutely. And I mean, that was done with, uh, I mean, as a gay man, I mean, I'm certainly aware of that in, in, in uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, that is something that you have a reaction to. You have a visceral, visceral reaction to. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable action, uh, or reasonable f reaction to have to that. But in the context of something like the Colbert show, he really is in a place where it, while it's on the show and while he deals with it directly and maybe actually has this discussion in, in an oblique way between his character and who he really is, then you can get somewhere with it. But once it dissolves into the stereotypes and it becomes just an epithet and the, the, the nature of the character that he's created becomes an insult in itself, then I understand people being upset by that. I mean, that's that's reasonable to me. See, I would go to your tweet, the person you said the tweet that bothered you, mm. and to that person, I would say, well, nothing is stopping you from 
from going ahead and showing us what this could be. That's not Colbert's way of doing it. I hate people when they criticize art for doing it not the way that they would do it. I mean, it's sort of like, well, Starry Night is nice, but I mean, maybe if you had a skyscraper in here, it would, you know. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's like people, I mean, at Q&As at film festivals, those are the questions that drive me crazy. It's like, well, maybe if you, and I, to which I always reply, well, go and make your own effing movie. All right. And on that lovely <laughs> note, we have to conclude here so we'll have time for an endorsement. So we'll be back with James Gorman and Carolyn after this. That's now in 90s, strictly information I'm giving, teaching on a regular basis. Today's lecture is about the racist. We're not out to exaggerate or diss them, but show the symptoms and facts of racism. Understand the racist ain't equal. There's about five different types of racist people. First of the five different types of Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with help from our mascot. You know, the one who's always saying The part of Bill Curry was played by James Franco. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in our intro. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. Our interns are Jane Ashley and Skylar Magnoli. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff with Frenchie, their offensive little dancing croissant mascot, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, The Scramble features a conversation with Charla Nash. And now... Back to Colin. All right. Yeah, I think they are getting rid of Frenchie at the Faith Middleton Show. Too many complaints about Frenchie. Uh, too much of a stereotype. All right. It's time for endorsements. Uh, I have like a killer endorsement today. I can't wait to get to my endorsement, but 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 host goes last. All right. So, Carolyn, you go first. All right. Uh, first, I want to endorse Billings Forge and um, their, they do these great cooking classes and Firebox. I actually took a mixology cocktail class this week. It was a lot of fun. So check them out. And they do such wonderful things for the community. Um, I also want to endorse the Trash and Fashion Show, which is coming up in Hartford on April 19th at City Hall. And it's a really neat event. Lots of local businesses and artists have made entire dresses and outfits made out of trash. Um, so why, why and, do I think you're a model at this? Uh, I, I might be. <laughs> but uh, it, there's still a chance to get involved and uh, make a trash and dress or uh, volunteer to help out and uh, make some of the installations. So definitely check that out. All right. Keep, keep, on, keep it moving. Um, uh, two things. Uh, one, uh, when we had our discussion about her, I didn't like the movie very much. I just wanted to say that I endorse that film now. I've seen it four times. <laughs> I think it's really an extraordinary film. So I really switched uh, on that. And so if, now you'll probably have to see it on alternative media. But uh, it's a great film, I think. Uh, the other thing is uh, on Sunday afternoon, the Op- April in Paris Film Festival opens at Cine Studio with Patrick Miller playing the piano for an incredible film, uh, Jean Epstein's uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, and it's a really special opportunity. He's a great pianist, and it's a great film. Um, so something very unusual. Did this, that Sunday afternoon. All right. Gorman? Uh, my third rock and roll documentary, Every Everything, The Music, Life, and Times of Grant Hart, the uh, Husker Du drummer, singer, songwriter. Uh, it's going to be out actually as a limited release on Record Store Day with a vinyl rarities, and then it's going to come out later in the year as well on regular DVD. And on May 20th, uh, my newest narrative feature, Broken Side of Time, which is a incredibly dark look at the world of Internet modeling, is released on DVD, uh, like I said, May 20th. And, uh, and also we're doing uh, Dog Named Gucci, a film on animal abuse in the United States. Go visit our, us on Facebook. All right. Uh, does any, any sort of trash models uh, appear in the in the movie about 
mo- internet model? No. All right. I'm I'm thrilled to be able to endorse uh, this uh, show that's playing right now at the Yale Rep. Uh, it's called These Paper Bullets. It is a mashup of two different things. One of them is Much Ado About Nothing. James was on a show that we did uh, an episode of The Nose. I can't remember whether you were there for this or not about the uh, black and white Joss Whedon Much Ado About yes. Nothing. Um, this is very, very different. Uh, this is Much Ado About Nothing, substantially rewritten with you know an awful lot of very contemporary language, but contemporary to 1964 in London, which is where it's set. Uh, now most of the male characters, the primary male characters, are essentially members of the Beatles. They're known as the Quartos in this play. Uh, Beatrice is a, a fashion designer, a designer of kind of Twiggy-esque uh, 1960s fashion. Um, it it, it's not a perfect play at this point. Um, it has music, uh, Beatlesque music, Beatle knockoff music, uh, contributed by Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. Um, it's it's still uh, rhythmically and and just in terms of sort of little things, it's a play that's still working the bugs out. But it's fabulous. It's really fun. Uh, I, I just had a tremendous time at this play. The characters, the actors are very winning. The woman playing Beatrice is fabulous. Uh, the things that they do with TV cameras out in the audience. The audience is actually sort of added to the play via TV cameras. That, that uh, the, the production design of this show and the amount of resources that have been poured into the production of this show far exceed what you'd expect for a regional theater like the Yale Rep. It makes me think the show probably has New York ambitions. I think it could very easily play New York. And I was just sort of aware at the end of the show that, you know, usually my idea of a really good time is having kind of a bad time but also having a really interesting theory about why I'm not enjoying things all that much. Uh, that's my idea of fun. Well, <laughs> this time I was just having a really good time. I, I was At the end of the whole thing, my mood was completely transformed and uplifted the way theater can occasionally do for you. It doesn't do it anywhere near often enough to make me happy. But uh, So anyway, it, it's only running another week. It's th- this weekend and next weekend and – and I mean through next week as well. These paper bullets at the Yale Repertory Theater. Go see it before you wind up paying New York bust-out ticket prices for it. You see it a lot more cheaply here. I'm Kyone Wolf, and you know, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Unless I'm offended, in which case I am right. <laughs> Typical Irish. Hey! Ow!